morning, I'm going to conclude our, our series, Soul Train. We, we've talked about this issue of living life in the Spirit. And as I, as I thought about today, and, and as I spent time in prayer and spent time in the Word, I kept going back over and over to a message, actually, that I preached two years ago. And, and I'm not a guy that likes to repeat, repeat a message, uh, but I just felt very compelled to, to revisit that, to revisit the stories and, and the principles in a sermon that I preached here in 2015. And so, I want to do that today. And, and more than preach a sermon, I want to just talk to you. I, I want to talk to you about, about my heart for God and, and my, my heart for the, for the world around me. I have to tell you, I, I love living in Orlando. I, I love everything about it. I, I, love, I love all that the city offers. I love the challenges that we face in living in Central Florida. And I, I know that God has called me here. And, and knowing that God has called me here, I, I can't help but think about some of these directive scriptures that God has given us, Right? Ephesians 5 tells me this. It says that I'm supposed to be an imitator of God, therefore. I've heard a lot of sermons on that Scripture verse, and and usually those sermons, it's talking about living a life of holiness. It's talking about all the things that we should do and all the things that we shouldn't do. But I found myself this week thinking about that, being an imitator of God. I, uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, I was, I was fascinated by people who could do imitations, right? And uh, I was fascinated. There, there are some people in the room that will remember this guy. There are some of the younger people in the room who will say, who? Um, but I grew up watching Johnny Carson, right? And uh, oftentimes it was through the, the crack in the door, right? Because it was after bedtime and I'd watch. And uh, a regular guest on the Johnny Carson show was Rich Little. Anybody else remember Rich Little? Uh, probably one of the greatest impersonators that they've been out there. A, a, a guy that's more recent is Frank Caliendo. Um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you turn on um, late night television now and things like Saturday Night Live, yes, the pastor just referred to Saturday Night Live. Don't freak out. You know, you'll see guys like Alec Baldwin doing his uh, Donald Trump imitation or, or any number of, right? And, 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 and somebody who does a good imitation, you, you, you you forget that it's that person, and, and you really you begin to see the character, correct? That, that, that's, that's what a good imitator does, right? You hear, you hear Frank Caliendo do John Madden, and you're not thinking, hey, there's Frank Caliendo. You're going, wow, he is, he is really doing John Madden as he talks about Brett Favre being the farviest of the Brett Favres that there could be, right? <laughs> the only imitation that I ever even was reasonably good at that I'm not going to do today is I could do a, I could do a nominal John Wayne imitation. Um, and, and, um, and I actually thought about doing it this morning, but I thought, mm, no, not so much. Because uh, I'm afraid that some of you would just go, that's it, I'm out, I'm leaving. <laughs> you know the imitation that I'd like to be good at? Be imitators of God, therefore. That's the imitation I'd like to be good at. See, that's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's all about us connecting with God in such a way that we can be imitators of God, therefore. And, and when I think about 
When I think about the way that God presents himself to me, when I think about when you ask people, okay, how would you describe God? What are the qualities of God that stand out for you? What do you think almost universally is the number one thing that people say when you ask them, describe, describe the qualities of God? What's going to be number one at the top of the list? Come on, say it together. Love, isn't it? Love. And yet, when we think about this issue of being imitators of God, we often don't think about love, right? We think about, okay, that means I have to, I have to not smoke or, or, or drink or dance or chew or hang around with those that do. I've, I've got you know, to live this very pious life. I've, I've got I've to walk the straight and narrow because that's what being an imitator of God is. And, and why is it that when we think about being an imitator of God, it's contrary to how what we would describe God? tell you something I go through every Sunday. I go through this every Sunday. Every Sunday, I have this, I have this battle that goes on within me. I, 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 I can't put into words how much I love what God's doing in our church. And, and those of you that are new here, that are, that, are, that are here for the first time or the first time in a long time, I'm thrilled that you're here. And, and, and you're not alone. We, we see we see new people joining the Calvary family every week, and I love that. But I also know this. I know that there are 1.9 million people in Orlando today that aren't in church, and every Sunday I walk in and I, I see these empty chairs. And I say, God, forgive us, and God help us. God, forgive us, and God help us. Because we have this very clear thing, the Great Commission that's been given to us, right? Why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew, uh, the 28th chapter. And Matthew 28, it's a very familiar portion of Scripture. And, uh, and, 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 and God t- says this, okay, to us in Matthew 28. Starting in the 16th verse, it says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But, but some doubted. That's not unusual, is it? Right? We gather together. We worship him. Some doubt. And Jesus came to them and said this, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. I want to talk to you about why, why I go. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I know that reality today because of people who invested in my life. When my family moved in 1973, when we moved from Illinois to to Cape Coral, Florida, we got connected with this little church. And uh, it was a little church, a little Bible Baptist church, and then it was in, in Fort Myers, and, and, uh, and we got connected with that church because my brother fell in love with the pastor's daughter. And the pastor told my brother that he could only date this girl if he came to church. And my brother was afraid to go to church by himself 
Uh, and so uh, he drug us along. Now, now prior to that, I'd had some church experience, uh, not a whole lot. We, we would go on Christmas and Easter. It was interesting though, we had, we had some religious wall hangings in our house and we had a big family Bible. Uh, that actually later my, my, my brothers used to tear pages out of the Bible to roll joints, marijuana joints, but that's a whole different sermon. And, uh, but we would, like we did, we did the Easter egg hunt, right? Even when I was a little three, four, five-year-old. And we would, we would go to church um, v- somewhat occasionally. And, um, and we would do so because my dad, my dad understood that we needed to have some sort of spiritual foundation. My, my father was not a very godly man, but, but he knew that, that we needed that. And part of that was because of my, my, my spiritual heritage. If you go back in my, in my paternal family line, it's, it's, it's very interesting. There are, there are pastors, it seems like every other generation there was a pastor, right? And there was a spiritual significance, my, my maternal line was very different. In fact, if you've been around, you've heard me tell the story. My mother was actually the product of a teenage girl having an adulterous relationship with a pastor. And so my mother grew up in a, in a home, in a single-parent home. My, my grandmother married a couple of times, and men kind of came and go. But my, my mother grew up in, in, in more times than not a, a single-parent home that was very hostile to the gospel and very hostile to church. My, my father had four children, and at 30 years of age, he left his wife while she was pregnant with the fifth that died in childbirth because he met my mother in a bar. My mother had already had one child, and, and together they had eight children. And uh, so if you, I, I oftentimes I'm, comment that I'm the 12th of 13. That, that's how we got, my mom had one, my father had, had four, and then eight together, 13. And so eight of us moved to to Florida because uh, my father was starting a new business venture in Cape Coral. And, uh, and so when we moved down to, to Florida for a while, we weren't connected to any church, didn't do anything. And then my brother fell in love with this Baptist pastor's daughter. And so we started going to this church, Bible Baptist Church. And, uh, and every Saturday, John and Debbie Biddle would show up at our house. They would knock on the door. And they would say, are you coming to church tomorrow? Bus is going to be here, 8.15. I don't know what time they had to get up on Sunday morning. I don't know how it is that they kept that junk heap of a bus running. But they would show up. And they would do these different things, like, like one Sunday they did Barnyard Sunday, which probably seemed like a good idea at the time, but, but when the goat was eating the seats out of the bus, they probably realized, yeah, let's not do Barnyard Sunday again, right? Maybe not a good idea. They had one Sunday, they had Watermelon Sunday, okay? Everybody that came, everybody that rode on the bus uh, got a watermelon, and they set the seats, the, the, the watermelons on the seats, Which seemed like a good idea, except the bus was only about 40% full when John had to slam on the brakes and and, and the the watermelons would slam against the seat in front of them and then on the floor. And I don't know, maybe 60% of the watermelons made it. And and the the floor just got kind of sticky, right? I remember one Sunday morning, you got on the bus and, and, and you see John, you don't see Debbie but there is this, this, this 
it, it's not quite a bear, it's not quite cookie monster, but it's kind of this combination, right, in this big, big outfit. It's southwest Florida, right? And she's in this head-to-toe costume, you know, walking with us and walking the kids and, and hugging them. I, I, I don't know how she survived the bus trip to church and the bus trip back. But I, I know that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because of John and Debbie Biddle, they've never been celebrated on TBN. They've, they don't have a building named after them. They made a difference in my life. John got transferred in his job. And they they moved to Alabama. It wasn't it wasn't long after that that my father died. And it wasn't long after that that we had to move out of our home in Cape Coral and we had to move into the ghetto in Fort Myers. And uh, our house was actually closer to the church in Fort Myers than it was in Cape Coral, but it was in a really bad neighborhood. And somebody made the decision that we probably shouldn't take the bus into the bad neighborhood. You know, Bible Baptist Church doesn't exist anymore. like a lot of churches in America. It just kind of it just kind of lost its way. It just kind of lost its lost its vision, you know, and we, we don't we don't do stuff like vacation Bible school anymore. We don't we don't have churches that have bus ministries anymore. I thank God that I grew up in an era where somebody would come and knock on my door on a Saturday and say, are you coming to church? And that they would drive that bus that certainly wouldn't pass a safety inspection, right? But they would pray over it, get it running, fill it full of watermelon, and come get me. Because I stand here today as your pastor and your friend because those people were committed to doing it. Let me tell you why I go. Let me tell you why I invest in people's lives. Let me tell you why I invite people to come to church whenever I can. Let me tell you why I think it's important that we not let opportunities like in two weeks friend day, why, why we can't let that go, why we have to go out in the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Because I still remember what it's like to hear my stepfather's truck pull into the driveway and wonder whether he is drunk or sober and knowing that it's a pretty good chance that he's drunk and knowing that he's drunk, that there's a beating coming for some reason. I, I still remember that. I still remember watching my siblings being arrested because of their drug dealing and, and, and that squad car pulling out of our driveway. I still remember that. I still remember 
growing up in a home where there was violence and adultery and corruption. I still remember that. And then I remember the hope that came into my world because somebody would knock on a door and say, we're going to be here to pick you up for church tomorrow. I still remember that. I remember what it's like to be a teenager and, and be, be so angry and bitter over the loss of my father that the only way that I could deal with it was to self-medicate through alcohol. And yet, in my darkest time, in my darkest hour, regularly running from the police. I can remember going to bed every night, and even in my darkest time, you know what I would do when I went to bed every night and I would lay my head on my pillow? I would pray, and I would pray that God would take care of my wife, wherever she is, that she would be a woman of God, and that God would bless my children whenever they came. Even in my darkest time. Why? Because there was a seed that was planted in me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that was planted in me by people who were willing to work a vacation Bible school. People that were willing to teach Sunday school. People that were willing to drive a, a church bus and, and come and get me. And I believe this, I believe in 2017 that there's another generation that needs that type of army. I believe that. Because here's what I know. I know that the house that we moved into when we moved to Orlando, that just a few months, a few months before, they had busted the house across the street as being a meth lab. That's why I go. I know that Orlando is one of the top areas in the nation for human trafficking. Where girls are sold cheap. That's why I go. I know that we're the number seven most unchurched city in America, the number four most de-churched city in America. And that's why I go. Because what they don't need is they don't need rules and regulations, but what they need is they need us to be imitators of God, and they need to know, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And you might live in one of the toughest neighborhoods in this area, and your neighborhood needs Jesus. You might live in one of the most exclusive gated communities in Central Florida. And friends, it is a sobering reality that the higher the per capita income goes up, the higher the suicide rate goes up. Why? Because money doesn't solve problems, because status doesn't solve problems, because in each person's life, there's a God-shaped hole that only Jesus Christ can fill. And that's why I go. I told you this story a few years ago. I told you the story of Joshua Chamberlain. Joshua Chamberlain was a, he was a professor at Bowdoin College in Massachusetts in the 1860s. And when the Civil War broke out, 
And by the way, let, let, let me, let me, let me, I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm going to pause. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say something that has the potential of being offensive. And on, a level, on some level, I don't care. In the midst of all the racial tension that's happening in the world today, I think it's important that we understand that men like Joshua Chamberlain, a white man, had his, had his horse shot out from under him six times, was wounded five times. In fact, at the Battle of Petersburg, he was, he was shot through the hip, and he took his sword and stuck it in the ground and stood there. That way, his, his fellow soldiers would see him standing. And why did he do, do that? He did that because he understood that freedom was important and that all men are created equal. And understand, if Joshua Chamberlain were any more white, he'd be clear. And so we, ha we have to get to a place where we live in a world where we recognize people for the condition of their heart, not the color of their skin. That's, that's just a little side note. Because I hate, I, 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 I hate getting lumped into hate. I hate that. There aren't many things I hate, but I do hate that. Joshua Chamberlain, he, um, he is most famous for his position at the Battle of Gettysburg. When, um, when the Civil War broke out, he, he wrote to the governor of Maine and he said, listen, he said, we have to do something about this. We have to be engaged in this. We have to be involved in this. And, uh, and he was given a leave of absence from his position. And he joined the Union Army. And, and, and they wanted to make him a colonel. And he said, oh, don't make me a colonel. I have no idea what I'm doing. He said, let me start lower and kind of learn, learn, learn this. But he, he eventually became a colonel. He was a colonel at Gettysburg. He actually, before the end of the Civil War, he, he got the title of general. They gave him the title of general because they thought he was, was going to die. And they thought it would be a great honor. But he miraculously survived. But in Gettysburg, he was, he was, he was leading a, 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 a regiment. And they were on this hill called the Little Bighorn. Or not Little Bighorn, Little Round Top. And he is on the far left side of Little Round Top. And, and, and he, as I mentioned, he's a colonel at this time. This whole group is actually under the, they're under the supervision, under the leadership of a guy by the name of Vincent, Colonel Vincent. And he says to Chamberlain, listen, you cannot let them come up our left side. You cannot let them come up that flank because if you do, we'll lose this hill. And if we lose this hill, we will lose the war. And, and the Confederate army understood that as well. And so they sent, they sent army after army after army, regiment after regiment after regiment to try to come up that left side. Chamberlain was shot in the foot. He was shot, interestingly enough, he was on his horse. He was shot off of his horse, but the bullet hit him in his belt buckle. He got back up. First charge against them, second charge against them, third charge against them, fourth charge against them. And, and as, he's as he's running out of ammunition and he's, as he's facing mounting casualties, Everything wisdom, natural military convention would have said, pull back, retreat, and regroup. And he does something that still historians say is absolutely amazing. And this, it is this. He gives the men the command to affix their bayonets and to, and to advance and to charge. 
And, and he does a military maneuver that's known as the great wheel. And basically what he does is he has his guys charge and they come around the left side and they capture this, this entire group of, of, of Confederate soldiers. And it changes the course of the Battle of Gettysburg. Years later, when asked about that moment, why Chamberlain did what he did, he said this. He goes, I'm not a smart military strategist. I don't know any of that. He said, I just had deep within me the inability to simply do nothing. Can I tell you that's where I live? Can I offer this to you? There are churches in Orlando that are pastored by men who have a much better understanding of Scripture than I do. They're much more highly educated. I, in December, I will finish my master's degree that, they, that the university let me in on an exception because I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I stand before you at this point an uneducated man. I am looking forward in December getting my master's degree, and yes, then I am going to call my, make my wife call me master, because when people get a doctorate, they have to be called doctor, right? It only makes sense. Got to get something out of it. I'm, I'm not even the smartest theologian in this room. But let me tell you what I do have. I have deep within me, deep within me, the inability to simply do nothing. We have to go out to the highways and byways and compel them to come in. What, what does God say? He says, listen, all authority, all authority has been given to me. So Go. What Jesus says in Matthew 28, it's what God ordained in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, 28, God says this to man. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number. Rule over the earth and subdue it. I have given you the authority, God says. Right? Genesis chapter 9. Mankind has sinned. So much so... That God destroys almost everything on the earth by flood. And then in Genesis chapter 9, he says this to Noah. He says, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Increase. And I've given you authority over all of this. And then God says something that is, I think, is profound. And truthfully, I've never heard anyone preach on this, but I think it's significant. God says this. He says, listen, I've given you authority over everything. Then he says this. He says, but don't, anything, don't eat anything with the lifeblood in it. Why? Because life is in the blood. And then he says this. He says, you'll have to give an account for the blood. You'll have to give an account for the life of every animal, and you'll have to give an account for the life of every person. And in fact, if you shed someone's blood, your blood will be shed. 
Because mankind is made in the image of God. And here's what I want you to grasp. Here's what I want you to understand. What God says to know is this. He says, I want you to understand how valuable life is. Understand the significance of what God's saying to Noah. God's talking about how valuable he sees life. This is coming right on the heels of the great flood. How much it must have crushed God's heart. to even allow the flood to take place. Can you, can you imagine all of heaven weeping as the rains are descending? Because it is not God's desire to judge man. It's not God's desire to punish man. The whole reason that the flood happened is because God understood that man had gotten so far from his original ideal of relationship that things had to be restarted. And here's what God says at the end of, the, at the, at the end of this. And he tells Noah, he says this. He goes, I'll never do that again. I will never alter the course of natural events to bring destruction upon the earth. I don't think God's heart could take it. Because God loves people more than anything. It's the reason why he says, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says this, the love of Christ compels us. It's the reason why I think it is absolutely impossible to be a healthy child of God and not be an imitator of God. And you cannot be an imitator of God and not love what God loves. And you cannot be an imitator of God without following Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go. And in your classrooms, in your workspace, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your social circles, there are people who are living hellish lives. And you know what they need? They need somebody to knock on their door and say, hey, I'll be here at 8.15 tomorrow to pick you up for church. The good news is this, you don't have to take a bus, drive your minivan, drive your Prius, pick them up on your bicycle. We have to go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And God is going to judge our church, not by how loud we shout, not by how aggressively we dance, not by how many tongues and interpretations we have or how many prophetic words that are shared. Here's how he's going to judge us. Were we imitators of God, therefore? The Bible says this. It says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven 
I've thought about that. I've thought a lot about that. What kind of treasures can I store up in heaven? I saw on my Facebook feed yesterday that some friends of ours from Illinois that they're moving to Indiana. The wife was commenting that she got a great new job. They're moving from Bloomington Normal to Columbus, Ohio. And somebody asked the question, is Mike coming with you? Mike's her husband. She said, of course Mike's coming. When Jody and I first met Terry, she was living next to us as a single mother, 50 years of age, single mother of three children, triplets, five years old. When I first met her and realized that she was, a, that she was as, a, as a 50-year-old woman, that she was raising triplets by herself, you know what I thought about her husband? Well, I'm not going to say it because we're in church. But I got to know Mike. Started spending time with Mike. We invited Mike and Terry to come to the small group that meets in our house. Those small groups are pretty powerful, aren't they? I had the opportunity to do their second wedding in the park right across the street from our house. The fact that Terry and the triplets and Mike are moving to Ohio, the fact that that family loves Jesus, that those triplets are in church, I believe that God went, hey, Ed, check. You've just stored up for yourself a treasure in heaven. See, the only thing in, in, in earth, the only thing on earth that's eternal are souls. Right? Everything else, everything else you see around you, it's temporary, it won't last. The only thing that's in, in, eternal, the only thing that is on earth that goes to heaven are souls. So how am I going to store up for myself treasures in heaven? I'm convinced it's Souls. That's the reason why the Bible says he who wins souls, she who wins souls is wise. We're called to be soul winners. Well, how do we do that? Be imitators of God, therefore. And listen, I, I understand and I've heard it. I've even said it. You know, I think it's more important to be Jesus than to talk Jesus. There's some truth to that. Listen, there's some truth to that. But here's what I can tell you. In my Bible, Jesus didn't just show love to folks. He introduced them to the Father. And you know what? I cannot say that I love you and really love you and not connect you to Jesus. I can't do it. I can't do it. 
it would not be difficult to argue that the complexion of our nation is what it is. And that the country that you live in would look very different, even potentially the geography of America. In fact, I don't believe it's a stretch to say that you could be sitting today not in the United States of America, but you could be sitting in the Confederate States of America if it weren't for a man by the name of Joshua Chamberlain who just said this, look, I don't understand it. I'm not the best. I don't have all that. But here's what I have. I have deep within me the inability to do nothing. And God is stirring in you the inability to do nothing. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.